You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me on this Thursday afternoon. Thursday afternoons, 12 noon Pacific time. I don't know what time it is for you in your particular time zone. We get together whenever I'm able to for a question and answer time on my YouTube channel. Very grateful for my YouTube subscribers and the community that we have together. And I want you to know how I look forward to every Thursday afternoon when we can come and do this. And I particularly look forward to it, if I could say even more now, because of our TWR 360 uh, partnership. Again, I just really want to recommend to you the work of Trans World Radio. That's TWR360. Trans World Radio for decades has had a remarkable ministry reaching the world through shortwave radio. Well, of course, in our modern age, they've also expanded to have effective ministry over the Internet. And their website, TWR360, reaches a wonderfully international audience And we're glad for our partnership with them to welcome them on to our YouTube channel. Our normal pattern for these Thursday afternoons is that we begin with a lead question, something of my own choosing, something that comes in by email or some other way. And then after the lead question, I get into the questions that you all submit on the side chat. So if you're watching via YouTube, you can see that there's a side chat. You can type your question in. Uh, Devin, our moderator, sort of uh, collates the questions, forwards uh, the ones that he think will speak to the broadest audience, to me, and then we go through our questions together. As I say before, and I think I typed this into the side chat, I don't want anybody to think for a moment that I know the answer to every question about the Bible or every question about the Christian life. I don't think that for a moment. But I am happy to share what I do know, and when I don't know, I think I'll be very upfront with you and just tell you, I don't know the answer to that question. Let's think about maybe some other things in the Bible that might apply to this. Before I get into our lead question today, I do want to add just one more thing. Next week on our question and answer program, I'm going to have a very special guest join us, and you're not going to miss that. A dear friend of mine is going to join us next week on the Q&A. I think you're going to look forward to that. All right, let's get into our lead question for today. It's phrased simply like this. When should I say no to a ministry opportunity? This question comes in over email, and I think it's a great question. You know, there are some people who have the tendency to say no to everything, and that's not good. We shouldn't be people who are constantly saying no, no, no to every opportunity or every suggestion. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe that there is, excuse me, and there should be some very deliberate way that you serve the Lord. And some of those things will come to us by ministry opportunities. (coughs) For example, somebody may simply say, (coughs) excuse me, Somebody may simply say, hey, um, can you help out with the uh, Sunday school class today? Hey, can you help out in this other ministry? Hey, can you help be an usher today? Excuse me with my voice. <clears throat> can you help set up chairs for the work that we want to do? Excuse me just for a moment with my voice. 
when these various opportunities come our way, what should we do? What opportunities should we take and what should we say yes to? What should we say no to? As I noted before, some people seem to say no to everything and other people seem to say yes to everything. <coughs> Either one of those can be bad. Now, let me put it to you very simply. I believe that in general, this is not a universal thing, but in general, we should say yes to immediate short-term needs that come before us that we can meet. When you come into church and if somebody asks you, hey, uh, can you help usher today? Uh, hey, can you help set up chairs? Hey, can you help in the toddler room? Unless there is a good and compelling reason to say no, you should be biased to say yes. Again, for an immediate short-term need that comes before us that we can meet. However, we should only make larger long-term commitments under the prompting and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and in consistency with our calling. Now, when we do make a larger, long-term commitment, we also must keep in mind our other commitments, the commitments we have to our own daily walk, the commitments that we have to our family, the commitments that we have maybe to other ministry involvements. It isn't good for us to overcommit. And if we really feel led to take on something, maybe that means that we should decline something else, that we should say, well, I am going to take on this aspect of serving the Lord, but I need to drop this other aspect because I don't want to overcommit. Now, how is it that I make this distinction between immediate one-off needs that come right in front of us and perhaps more long-term needs? I draw a lot of this from the simple example that I would give you with the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Notice this. In Luke chapter 10, we're given the story of the um, Good Samaritan. And there was a man on his way to Jerusalem, on the road to Jericho, and uh, he had a lot of difficulty. He had a lot of trouble on the way. He was robbed. He was beaten. He was uh, treated very badly, and he was left for dead on the side of the road. Now, a priest on his way to Jerusalem passed right by him and didn't help him. A Levite who passed right by him on the way to Jericho, uh, excuse me, on the way to uh, Jerusalem, didn't help him at all. The priest and the Levite who passed by that man in the story that Jesus told, they were wrong to pass by him. There was a need. And it was not right for them to claim, hey, I'm not called. God doesn't want me to do that. There was an immediate need right in front of them, and the priest and the Levite were wrong to not do whatever they could to meet that need. Now, they should have done it. And the Samaritan was right. He was praiseworthy for doing it. Now, for his own right, the Samaritan was not called 
to make a hospital there on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem. That would have been a long-term calling that I believe someone should not do uh, apart from a real sense of calling that they have. So this is what I would just simply say. When it comes to immediate needs, like a man broken and beaten right there down the street in front of us, we don't need a specific sense of calling to meet the need. We should jump in and do it. However, when it comes to long-term commitments, to things that are of a more long-term and critical need, those are things that we should do with a much, much more um, active, we should do it with a much more um, uh, attuned sense of calling and following the Lord. Now, when I use that phrase, immediate needs, I especially mean the immediate needs that are actually right in front of us in our real life. I understand that one of the challenges of the modern internet and social media age that we live in is that we receive notice of countless needs and crises from all over the world. And from many of these, we receive from people that we don't know at all. I don't think that we can deal with such things except by the prompting of the Holy Spirit. But we should be more ready to help with the things that are right in front of us in real life than we often are. So, should I say yes or no to a ministry opportunity? To me, it makes a great deal of difference as to what kind of opportunity or ministry opportunity it is. An immediate one-off need, I think we should be biased on the side of immediately getting in there and helping the very best that we can. Um, I think that when it comes to uh, other kinds of needs, long-term commitments, that we should be much more um, nuanced in the way that we deal with things. So um, those are some of the things I have, those thoughts that come with uh, this particular issue. Uh, I want to move on to another question that comes to us from our TWR audience. Um, this is a question that comes to us named Sabina. And Sabina asked this question. My question is regarding Mark chapter 14, verse 3, where it says this, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper. Now, she asks the question, Why? Simon the leper. In other words, was he still a leper after Jesus got to meet him? Uh, and really what Sabina's question is, is she phrases it like this. Did Jesus heal everybody who came to him with faith? Okay, Sabina, that's a great question. And let me just say that, first of all, when it matters, 14 verse 3, about Simon the leper, I think most people agree, and I've never heard a commentator say differently than this. Most people agree that that is referring to somebody who was formerly a leper. Matter of fact, seeing that now he was healed of his leprosy, 
it's almost even more wonderful to call him Simon the leper because everybody knows he's no longer a leper. Now, I suppose it's consider that he continued to be a leper, but most everybody I've read and who analyzed and just see the context of how that's mentioned there in Mark chapter 14, verse 3, assumes that this was Simon who was healed of his leprosy. And we could also say this in another regard, because we understand that when um, it mentions it there in Mark chapter 14, I'm doing this somewhat by memory there. In Mark chapter 14, when it mentions Simon, it mentions him in the context of Jesus being with him at the home of other people. Um, let's 14, verse 3, where we read, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Now, if you notice there, this whole situation takes place at the home of Simon the leper, who is hosting people in his home. People would not have come into his home if he was still a leper. So, Sabina, we can say with confidence that Simon the leper was actually a former leper. Was in fact, but Sabina, I want to get back to the other question you asked. Did Jesus heal everyone who came to him with faith? Sabina, the answer to that question is, knowing the Gospels, as far as we know. Now, we can say that Jesus did not immediately heal every sick person that he saw or injured person. When Jesus came to the pool of Bethsaida, he saw people lame and ill and afflicted all around the pool. He went and he healed one. We know that the beautiful in Jerusalem that Peter and John healed in Acts chapter 3. He sat there for many, many years. Jesus passed by that man many times. So Jesus did not heal every sick or injured person that he saw. We don't know in the Bible of a single instance where Jesus did not heal someone who came to him in faith. Now, you go on in Sabina's question. She asks this, as Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and in forever, that's what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, does he still promise to heal everyone who comes to him with faith? Sabina, let me answer this question saying this. I believe that the Bible promises absolute, completely, he, complete healing for every person who's a believer in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we call that resurrection. We need to understand there is complete healing waiting for every believer in resurrection. God promises that his healing, his work of salvation is just as much for our body as it is for our soul or our spirit. God has promised to perfectly heal, strengthen, and restore the body of every believer. Now, you notice I'm saying that that promise is ultimately fulfilled in the resurrection. We also believe this. 
that God many times shows his grace and his goodness to people in the here and now by healing those who come to him on faith right here and right now. This is something that we can and we should comfort. I believe, I hope you do as well, that God heals people today. Now, why God does not heal everyone immediately, right here and right now, even those who come to him in faith, we can't answer that. So, Sabina, I would just simply say this. God does promise ultimate healing for everyone who comes to him in faith. Ultimately, that happens in the resurrection. And sometimes, many times, God grants gracious demonstrations of that healing power to someone immediately right here in the he, here and now. And we are grateful to God for when he does that. So again, I want to thank you, Sabina, for submitting that question through our portal on and welcome our TWR360 audience. So let me go over here and take a look at some of the questions that are sent to us by Devin, our moderator from the side chat. He says this, in Joshua chapter 7, why, well, this question comes from GT, why was Achan's family also stoned and burned for Achan's sin of coveting and stealing? Okay, uh, here's why. And that's a good question. It's a valid question. Because not only was Achan or sin of stealing the things that were to be set apart to the Lord. But his family was as well. That is very clear there in Joshua chapter 7. If you notice, where did they find the materials, substantial materials, that Achan stole? They found them under the tent, under the family tent. In other words, I don't believe that Achan could have stolen and hidden those items without the knowledge and perhaps even the partnership of the family. Those things were buried under the family tent. And again, to me, this indicates that the family knew and perhaps, maybe even probably, I know that's a bit of a conjecture, they were complicit. They were partners in his crime. And they would have also benefited from the crime. So this is why in this particular situation, God commanded that not only Achan be executed for the crime, as God announced previously that this would happen, absolutely forbidding on the pain of death anybody taken of these things that were to be devoted unto the Lord and to no one or nothing else. Not only was Achan guilty, but when we find out where he hid those stolen items, again, it was under the family tent. I don't think he could have done that without the knowledge and the agreement, perhaps even the partnership of the family itself. So, GT, that's a great question, and thank you for asking it. Let me go on to a next question here from Donald, who says, The Bible says that the Spirit goes back to God when we die. So, what about the thief on the cross when Jesus told him, This day you shall be with me in paradise? Okay, Donald, I want you to know, I don't 
exactly precisely understand the question. Let me do the best I can with this. Now, it is true that believer dies, they go to heaven. As Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no other way to say that. To be absent from this body for the believer is to be in God's presence. And Jesus told us that he goes to prepare a place for us. When Stephen died in the book of Acts chapter 7, and as he was being stoned, he saw Jesus welcoming him into heaven. We should not believe in the idea of what some people call soul sleep. That when a person, particularly a believer, dies, that they go into some state of suspended animation for however many years. No, that isn't what the Bible teaches. Now, what about the thief on the cross? Well, I believe that it was the thief's experience to be in heaven with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, God the Son, that very same day that he died. And that is paradise. Uh, Paradise is God's garden. I I believe Jesus used it as a reference to heaven right there. And basically, it was the same thing as telling the thief on the cross, you're going to be with me in heaven today, which I believe that, so to speak, the gates of heaven opened wide for all of those who had died in faith in Jesus the Messiah Those gates of heaven were opened wide once Jesus finished his atoning work on the cross, and the price had been paid. It wasn't only looked forward to in anticipation. Jesus said on the cross before he died, it is finished. That ancient Greek word that he uttered from the cross is telestai, which can also be understood as paid in full. Very happy about that. Paid. You could say the gates of heaven were opened wide and all of those who had died in faith were welcome to come into heaven, including the thief on the cross. So, uh, Donald, I hope that answers that question there for you. Uh, When a person dies, they do go to be with the Lord. A believer, Someone who does not die in the Lord, I believe, first goes to a place called Hades, where they await the final judgment, and then after the final judgment, they go to or Gehenna. So, yeah, Andrea asks this question. In John chapter 6, verse 16, why did the disciples leave to go to Capernaum without Jesus? It says in John chapter 6, verse 16, and seven in the New King James Version, or actually in the New King. Now, when evening came, his disciples went down by the sea. It says, Jesus got into the boat and went over to the sea towards Capernaum. So let me take a look at that passage here. Uh, John chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 16. Now, this is what I would uh, tell you. This is a question that answered by going to other passages of the scriptures. Uh, 
if you notice here, I'm taking a look here at the uh, New King James Version. It says Jesus walks on the scene here in uh, John chapter 6. The corollary passages to this are Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. And we know by comparing with those particular passages that not only did Jesus tell them to go, but Jesus commanded them to go over and that he would join them. Why did they go to Capernaum without Jesus? Because Jesus told them to. Why did Jesus tell them to? Well, I'm going to surmise that Jesus told them to because he expected that they would be tested on Galilee, and he wanted to see how they would meet this test. Um, they had trusted Jesus in the midst of a storm with Jesus in the boat. Now, how would they trust Jesus uh, in a storm without in the boat? I really love this because they went to Capernaum without Jesus because of the specific command of Jesus. Jesus told them to do this. And they ran into a great storm on that sea. To me, this reminds me of how it is true that the uh, disciples of Jesus, including ourselves, we can be exactly where God wants us to do, doing exactly what Jesus tells us to do, we can experience great difficulty. Some people kind of believe that if we are really in God's times when we are in the very middle of God's setting, because what, because what we always want to is pretending that something is prophetic when it's not. We want to be very real about the gifts of the Spirit and never pretend and never manufacture. Now, I say that as someone who believes that God can actually, uh, and sometimes does, speak through such gifts with people in a small group setting. So, I believe that it's appropriate if believers are gathered together, worshiping the Lord, waiting upon the Lord, ministering unto God. I love how it says it's there in Acts chapter 13, where it speaks about the um, uh, disciples' ministry. And in the midst of that prophetic word. Okay, so how do we have this? Well, first of all, have believers wait upon the Lord, minister unto the Lord, God. And uh, if someone has a genuine inner sense that perhaps the Holy Spirit would like to speak something in a very, um, I don't know how to put it, non-dramatic kind of way. Hey, folks, I, I think that the Holy Spirit would speak something to us as a group. Maybe the Holy Spirit would speak something to us through the reading of Scripture. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe the Holy Spirit would speak something through a spontaneous word. But here's the point. First of all, I think it is so much more wise when people say, I think the Holy Spirit is saying something to our group, and this is what I believe he's saying, rather than making things very dramatic, making things very self-focused, and saying, 
uh, my little children, thus saith the Lord, on and on like that. That adds a weight of self-importance and confidence that you know exactly what the Holy Spirit is saying that I don't think is really merited, not really right. So um, I think it's wise to present those terms. But here's the other aspect, Ethan, that is very important. Whoever is in spiritual leadership among that group must judge that word. In other words, the Bible commands that words of prophecy be judged among believers. And if those words will not be judged, then people shouldn't be speaking forth words of prophecy, period, or suggested words of prophecy. I think it is important. I think it is essential for us to approach such things in a biblical manner. And the Bible says that words of prophecy should be judged. Therefore, if a brother or sister uh, brings forth what they believe to be a word of prophecy appropriately, in a small group setting, then it should be judged. And people should say something like, um, uh, if I was leading the group, I would say, I, I just want to say that um, I, I witness that uh, what our dear brother or sister said there uh, really was from the Lord, and I, I receive it to us. Um, if it's not such a case, then I think that it should be gently but straightforwardly said, uh, God bless our dear brother or sister, but I don't think that they were speaking from the Lord. If tested, if it will not be judged by those who are in spiritual leadership at a small group setting, uh, then I don't think it should be practiced. Those are some thoughts I have on that, Ethan. I hope that's helpful for you. I do want to say uh, I apologize a great deal for the diffy of the um, uh, stream. It seems like we have a lot of buffering on today's stream, and I really can't explain why. Uh, maybe for that reason, we'll short today. Um, Adonis makes this question. Why did Aaron losing Nadab and Abihu justify Aaron not eating the sin offering as Leviticus chapter 10, verses 16 through 20, and Leviticus 16 through 20. Um, let me read this here. Then Moses made careful inquiry about the go to the sin offering, and there it was, burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithmar, the sons of Aaron who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it was most holy, and God has given it to you, bear the guilt of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord. Its blood offering was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten at a holy place as I commit. So God commanded that Eleazar and Ithmar, the sons of Aaron, brothers of Eleazar, I need to complain, uh, explain it in a complicated way. They should have eaten the sin offering, as it says in Leviticus chapter 10. Now, verse 19, Aaron said to Moses, Look, 
this day they have offered their sin offering and their burden offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I have eaten the sin offering, would it have been he was content? All right, look, I'm afraid that this is a little bit complicated for me to get into uh, in a really efficient way. So what we're going to do is we're going to go over to the Enduring Word Bible Commentary. I really don't know what to do better than that, than to answer this particular question. Take a look at this on the Enduring Word Bible Commentary, my own Bible Commentary. These are my own notes taking a look at the aftermath of the judgment on Nadab and Abihu, where we read simply this, uh, verse 16. Um, Moses wanted to know why Eleazar and Ithmael didn't eat the portions of the sacrifice were given to the priests to eat. Since Aaron replied in their behalf, in verse 19, it seems they did not eat it because they followed their father's example. Okay, so... What we have here is a situation where Aaron did not eat of the sin offering mainly because of grief on the day that his own sons were executed by the Lord for offering strange fire before God. Aaron, father of these two sons, out of grief, did not eat of the sin offering. However, God expected that these two brothers of Nadab and Abihu, again, that would be of the sin offering. Because even though they were brothers, they were not the sons. Uh, excuse me, they, uh, they did not have these executed men as their sons. Look, uh, Adonis, I guess the question, and again, may I say, read through my commentary on Leviticus chapter 10. It might fill you in more. But just off the cuff here, what I'm going to say is there's a difference between Aaron, the father of the men who were killed by the Lord, and these of the men who were killed by the Lord. And the difference is, of course, it's far more grievous to have your children die than it is even to have your brother. I'm not saying that it's a light thing to have your brothers die. But what God did is he basically excused Aaron from the sacrifice, not excuse the sons, excuse me, the brothers of Nadab and Abihu from the sacrifice. The ministry had to go on. And that's why in that particular situation, it was required of them that they should have participated in the sin offering and why God did not excuse them from that. Again, I'm sorry for taking so long on that. It's kind of a complicated question that uh, I, I couldn't just offer from the shoot. So we went to the commentary and took a look at it. I hope that's helpful, Adonis. Diana asks, have you heard apostolic reformation movement and what do I make of it? I have apostolic reformation I think much of it with their foundational premise. The foundational premise of the new apostolic reformation movement is that 
the big in the church today is that aren't recognizing prophet apostles in the midst of the church and for the church to really go forward into the next level of what god has for them what the church really needs to do is start recognizing apostles in their midst and sort of going down before the authority of such apostles um, diana i disagree with that in the strongest terms i do not believe that god is restoring so to speak apostles to the church in the apostolic reference he is i believe that this is not a biblical thing and i believe that dangerous thing. I believe that we have apostolic authority in our day and age, and it comes from this. Apostolic authority does not come from somebody who claims the title apostle. I know I get a little worked up over this, but let me tell you, there is no person who claims to be a modern day apostle who has authority over me or over my faith this has authority over me, the writings of the apostles and prophets. So the idea that the church really needs a restoration, so to speak, of people who claim to be apostles, I think not only is it nonsense, I think it's dangerous nonsense. And that we are free men and women in Jesus Christ, and we are ruled over by God through the foundation that was given to us by the apostles and prophets, as the Holy Spirit tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Beyond that, I don't think we need apostolic authority from people who claim to be apostles in our modern day and age. All right, uh, let me go on. Thank you for that question there, Diana. Jane asked the questions. Um, are we not supposed to teach the gospel to pigs and dogs? Again, when uh, Jesus gives that um, reference there in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, verse Jesus saying, and let me go over there now to that particular passage. Uh, Matthew 7, 1. Again, you'll for, forgive me while I take a moment. Okay, well, here, here is the issue that I want to make a point. If you take Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, actually, what you're doing here in this question, Jane, is you're bringing together a couple of passages. Um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 says, uh, not that you not be judged. Uh, and then in verse 6, it says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Uh, do not cast your pearls before swine. Okay, so... Um, no, we are to bring the gospel to pigs and dogs, so to speak. But where there are people whom we know to be hardened rejectors of the good news of Jesus Christ. I think Jesus does not require us to bring the gospel to them in the same way 
that he would require us to bring the gospel to people. So uh, people that you know are, so to speak, hardened rejectors of the word of God. Hey, listen, I think Jesus almost gives us a pass before those people. Uh, again, don't dogs nor cast lest they trample those things in pieces. I think that very much God wants us to know that where there are people who are hardened against receiving God's word, sometimes it's one wise to bring them God's word. This isn't a general sense of just kind of us going out and deciding who a pig or a dog is and saying that we're not going to bring the gospel to them. So, um, Jane, that's how I would answer that question. Connor asked the question, uh, would you say Achan's sin also disqualifies the Zara family line to be in the Messiah lineage? Um, uh, Connor, um, perhaps, um, certainly, uh, God brings redemption. Um, I, I don't think that Achan's sin would be disqualifying for his entire descendants. Um, that's why I, I wouldn't say that in an absolute sense, but uh, assuming that the Zara family line was disqualified, that they were not chosen, and again, I can't think of the lineage right here immediately in my mind, uh, that... Uh, a similar kind of could mean that 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 God would bypass such a line. Although we have to admit that God wasn't shy about including sinners in the line of the Messiah. We have some pretty notorious sinners in the line of the Messiah. Judah was in the line of the Messiah, and he pretty grievously. Of course, um, uh, Ruth, uh, Rahab, she was, I should say Rahab, she was in the line of the Messiah, or mentioned, therefore, uh, in it. You have uh, other people, such as uh, David, in the line of the Messiah. So uh, there, there's some pretty grievous sinners in the line of the Messiah. I, I don't know if that should be regarded as an immediate disqualification. All right, let me take uh, one more question here uh, from Lupe, then we will um, cut it off for the day. Again, part of it is because we've had a very inconsistent stream today, and I apologize for that. Lupe asks a question. There are many scriptures that speak about how God will protect us from harm and evil. So why do wicked things happen to Christians who are not in habitual sin? Well, Lupe, um, it's true. There are many promises that are that speak about some kind of protection from harm, protection from evil. But I would just say that those uh, passages and promises in the scripture are not absolute. Now, I am sure believer in Jesus Christ, there are many, perhaps uncountable, things that God has preserved you from, uh, troubles or hardships that would have come upon you, but God in his grace and his mercy protected you from. We just have no way to count or measure such things. However, God does not make any kind of promise to believers. Even believers who are 
no trouble. Do, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, these things I have spoken to you that you might have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Thessalonians, and that they should not be surprised by this affliction that they were appointed to. In other words, God appointed them to affliction. God uses pain and trouble in the Christian life. Now, it's a very difficult thing to talk about, and maybe I should deal with this in greater depth at another time. Not every trouble or affliction or pain that comes into the life of a believer is from God. Certainly, there are things that we could be delivered from if we just trusted God in the midst of them. But there certainly are difficulties and problems and troubles that believers go through that God has appointed. There are some things that God wants us to be delivered from in faith. There are other things that God would have us be delivered uh, through in faith. In other words, we're still in the circumstance, but delivered through it. So, Lupe, I would just uh, say that nowhere in God's Word does He give a broad promise to every believer that once we believe in Jesus, we will be spared all the tribulation, all the difficulty in this world. But rather, God does have a plan and a purpose for suffering. And again, I don't want to imply for a moment that there are not some sufferings that believers experience that God would deliver them from if they would just trust. I believe those situations exist, of course. But we know that God can and wants to use, at times, suffering in our walk with Him and our going forward in the Christian life. Well, we're going to end with that today. Uh, Sorry that we're not going longer. I know it's a little bit annoying with the buffering problems with the stream that we have right in front of us. Uh, But perhaps we can address those things and get back to them another time. Thank you for joining us today. And I do want to say again, once more, thank you to our TWR audience, uh, people who are meeting with us today. Very pleased that you could join us on today's live question and answer. God bless you. And we hope that you can join us again. See you then following week. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.